What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We've been empathizing for the the white culture through creativity for a long time. We empathize with Harry Potter. We empathize with Charlie Bucket. We empathize with, we become, we see these characters so we know how they feel. We empathize for these characters and we do the same thing in real life. But like never growing up, is there a lot of books where everyone's reading where they empathize with kids of color? Cause I think if the empathy goes through reading, it also translates into real life. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to former NFL player, pro bowler, and Super Bowl champ, and children's book author Martellus Bennett about his new book, Dear Black Boy. So looking forward to this discussion with Martellus Bennett. Also, I've got some choice words about Los Angeles Rams owner Stan Kranke. Yes, this is our Super Bowl episode, so I'm going to take down the owner of the Rams. He's very bad and he's making it very difficult to root against the New England Patriots. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards to people who are protesting at the Super Bowl. And I got some Kaepernick watch. But first, let's go to Martellus Bennett. I'll just ask you just straight up. I really want to talk to you about Dear Black Boy. Um, it's your third book. Can you talk a little bit about what it is and wh- why you decided to write it? Well, um, for me, I, I, I like I like to well, I like to think of it as the black version of all the places you'll go, <laughs> but mm. but de- like dedicated to black boys. But for me, it was the idea of like just looking back at myself as a young kid and and then how I feel like the world looks at us sometimes and how society views us as black boys and. And the way that um, we're pushed to uh, pursue things is mainly through sports. And I just want to use a sports metaphor to tell them that they could be so much more than just athletes. There's so many other dreams out there for you to achieve. And it's okay to dream those dreams as well. And I wrote it after um, Alton Sterling um, thing happened. I just kind of felt like kind of like like most people probably felt kind of hopeless, you know, like, damn, like. What are we gonna do? Like, what's going on? So I just, I just pinned that out. Like sometimes, like for me, I'm a little different from like my brother and a lot of other guys. Like I do most of my, my stuff through writing and through art. So like that's for me. That's like the most powerful thing I could do. I think art is one of the most powerful things and one of the things that could trigger you and push you into a direction. I think that as a children's book, the idea of being introduced to being more than 
being introduced to the idea of being more than an athlete should be from a young age. You know, you shouldn't have to wait till you're 16 and in college and someone tells you that, oh, you could be something else or do something else. From a young age, you should be told that this is okay and you could do whatever it is that you want to do. Not that they aren't being told that, but emphasis can be put on that even more. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I know about you that people might not know is that you were considered like a prodigy athlete from a very young age. Uh, you know, like taller, faster, stronger than people in your age group uh, in multiple sports. Uh, what would it have meant for you to have a book like this when you were, say, 12, 13 years old or even well, younger? I, well, I did have a book like this, but that book was just my parents. <laughs> so, you know, so my dad and my mom, like I was first chair in band growing up. You know, I did I did all the art shows. I did. I was a, I was a math athlete, you know what I'm saying? So... I was doing all these different things, and it was because my parents empowered me to be able to do these things. And I just want to share that same encouragement. Um, not them, their dads, but you know, but like it's that same type of empowerment to the younger youth. But I think that being able to see that from a, if I didn't have my parents there and I had to rely on like society to tell me things and my whole viewpoint on what I would have did and what I thought was okay would have been different. Now, when you were in the NFL, would you describe most of your teammates as people who had these kinds of outside interests or were they people who had been, you know, wearing those blinders their whole life with, you know, the NFL as that only goal? I, I mean, I think that's the that's the thing. I think a lot of guys that is the only goal. And it's like you you start this dream of making it to the NFL. It takes 20, you know, 23 years. It's a young dream to have. And it's a dream that ends. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. Like, my dream of doing art and making films never really ends. You know what I'm saying? When you make things, that never really ends. But And you work your entire life to maybe play three and a half years in the NFL, you know, so on a on a global span of how long your lifespan is, 76, 77 years, only three years, you've worked three, your entire, the early adolescence years of your life for a three-year span. But then what's next? This is more so, like, I think a lot of guys... When they start to get older in the league, they start to realize, man, this isn't all there is. And then there's like this identity crisis and like this. And then there's like this panic of like, damn, what am I going to do next as it starts to close? Even now, a lot of guys are calling me. They were great athletes, great players. Like, man, like, how do you do this? I'm not like crazy because these guys are multiple pro bowlers and, you know, you know, champions and things like that. And they all try to figure out. Man, they realize like this. I've been dreaming about this so long. I've done it. Now, now, what am I gonna do? And this is really about not a kick in the kick in the face to sports, but the idea of that you can use sports as a stepping stool to get you into other doors that you want to be in as well. Mm. Did you, did you have a particular moment when you realized? I mean, in addition to your parents, when you realized that there was more to your life than sports, or or when you decided that you wanted to be creative or do art or do film. Was there was there a particular like uh, light bulb moment? Maybe a film you saw, an artist you saw that just well, made you say like, "Wow, this is what I want to do." Yeah, here's the here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is that um, I never considered myself an athlete. I just played sports, right? I never had like an athlete mentality. Like I love to compete and I love to play, but I never was one of the guys in the locker room. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. like I was. I was one of the guys on the field because we played, but in the locker room, I wasn't a like the the mold or the 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 stereotype of what an athlete's going to be in the locker room. And 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 a lot of, at first, it took a lot of guys time to get like used to me because people used to think I tried to like 
you know, separate myself from the team, but it's, I just had different interests. Like I, like I have guys who call me and be like, hey, let's meet up for lunch if they're in town. I'm like, oh, I got some homies with me. Then I show up as like an Asian kid, an Indian kid, you know, somewhere from. It's like, damn, what the fuck y'all been doing all day? So um, I think for me, I, don't, I really think this is, I always say that, like someone had to teach me how to play sports. Like I didn't know how to run routes. I didn't know how to catch the ball. I didn't know how to shoot a basketball. Like I wasn't born to play sports. Like that was a, I, that was something I had to learn to do. Art, I've no one had to teach me, right? I just did it. I've always just made art and I've always wanted to make art. And like, I look at my daughter now, like I've never taught her how to draw anything or how to paint anything. And she just does it. It's natural. It's just who is in her. I think art is at the, at the, without art, that cannot be any humanity. And with, um, and what happened with that was, and so for me that, but to talk about a movie that changed my life, that made me realize I want to make things forever. It was Gene Wilder and Willy Wonka. I just saw, like Willy Wonka was huge to me because um, he made chocolate, right? And it was just like, everybody wanted this chocolate. Everybody wanted to see how he made this chocolate. Everyone was going crazy for his chocolate. So one thing I always thought about in my life is like, what is my chocolate? Right. What is that chocolate that I'm going to make that everybody wants to have and everybody wants to get their hand on, you know? And that's kind of how I, I was like, man, I'm going to be like Charlie and Charlie. I'm going to be like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory where I just make so many cool things and people just go and want to buy as much candy as possible just to get five tickets. If people, if people could see one thing that you've created that would give them an introduction to the kind of work you do, what would it be? Uh... I don't I can't really say because I create in so many different facets, you know, whether it's apps, films, books. I mean, I think every I think the idea for me is the stories like so every story. So the idea is like stories. What's the best way to tell a story? Some stories are novels, some stories are short films, some stories are full feature films. And yeah, my job is to figure out which vehicle is the best one to deliver the story that I want to tell. Because sometimes it may just be a painting. And that's like the entire story. Instead of writing 20 pages, I could tell that one story in the painting. You know, so it's just like, what's the story that I want to tell? And I think that for like most people, I think, I don't really know. I make so much stuff. It's ridiculous. I just can't put, I, I'm self-sufficient. I mean, I'm self, I'm self-operated. So I have no investors in my company or anything like that. So it's all my, I, like I invest in my own ideas and stuff. So I only can put out so many things at a time. So, um, I have, that's amazing. I have nine books written, you know, I only have three that's out, you know, and then, um, like I write my first, it just varies. Like each story is different. Like this story is like, for black boys and the parents of black boys. Like I want that. That's who I want this story to be for. That's why it's dear black boy. And then like, you know, like, Hey, AJ was for, you know, black girls to want to think about going on adventures and use the power of imagination, you know? So every single thing is like, is a little bit different, but the power of imagination is always at the core of everything I create. I look at myself as a travel agent. Um, Explain please. Yeah, I look at myself as a travel agent, meaning that um, my job is to create great adventures for you to go on. So, like, when you buy a book from me, it's almost like purchasing a ticket to go to a place that only I could take to you, take you on because I created it from scratch. So you can't go to American Airlines. You can't go to Delta to get to these places that I've created. You can only purchase it through the Imagination Agency. So I look at my company and our team as travel agents, and it's like, where do I want to take people, and how do I want them to experience this? Because... 
I think that growing up as black kids, we didn't really get a lot. And still to this day, we still don't get a lot of escapism. Right. And I think that that's very needed. That's very needed because when you escape, especially when you escape to these fictitious worlds and you read fiction, you come back a little bit changed and you realize that your world can be different because you visit all these different worlds. So you just kind of build your imagination and it makes you more creative. Yeah. And I have a theory. That's why Black Panther was the phenomenon that it was. Because yes, it spoke, because of Wakanda. Spoke to the thirst that people had. Yeah, now everybody wants to escape to Wakanda. Like that was a first major, major escapism given to because given to us. Really, it was. I mean, that part of it was amazing. Mm-hmm. And the whole movement around like Afrofuturism. It's yeah, like stepping into a, a need that just hasn't been there on the cultural landscape. Yeah, and it's always interesting because people paint Africa. Like my wife just got back from Cape Town, and everyone always paints Africa like in this place that's like, you know, just poor and it's ugly, you know, type of thing like that. But it's one of the most beautiful places in the world just from, you know, talking to her and stuff. And it was like why people wanted to rob it. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to go. Nobody wants to rob poverty. Everybody wants to rob places of its riches. So if a place has lots of riches and beautiful things, that's who you rob. You don't go rob the the shack on the corner. You go rob the mansion. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's it's the actual it's the wealth in Africa that's the reason why they painted is not looking good, so people don't look too closely at what's being taken. So I, I, I see that as all connected. Me too. I told. I, it's just all propaganda. Mm. And I gotta say, the, the illustrations on Dear Black Boy are are remarkable. I'm, I'm not. I mean, is that you? Did you do the we, illustrations, or did you have a team? My, or yeah, I have a team. So like, what I did at first, what I did was. <laughs> Actually, the book has been printed a little bit later than I would like because when I first made the book, the idea was to make each page a different shade of brown, right? So each, each, um, for for the represent all brown black boys, right? But then as I started looking at it, I was like, oh yeah, I missed. Like I got the first sample back, I was like, I totally fucked this up. I missed this. <laughs> so I was like, this is ugly. So I went back and I just started thinking about the best way to illustrate the story so like if you see i don't really put eyes on the the kids or facial expressions for the for the most part because when you do that when you can see yourself in the i want the kids to be able to see themselves in the character on the page so it represents us all once you give it eyes it has a soul but when you give eyes to it it takes on your soul you know if that makes sense um it was a team of people who put the illustrations together. Yeah, we do it in House of the Imagination Agency. So I just sketch out the pages and I sketch out the art and how the the flow of things are going to look. And uh, from there, we just build it out. And I wanted to do watercolor and I wanted to use as much brown as possible. So it's like, how can we bring this to life with the brown? And the pages are kind of dark. I wanted the pages to be kind of dark because the quest that they're on is for freedom. And the whole time in this book, even though you may lose sight of it, you're still in this maze. Right. You're trying to get through this maze. Right. And then even when you get through the maze at the end of the book, it still is like runners take your places because it's like so it's like the whole thing. It's like a double entendre. Like is the race just starting or is just like is it a never ending race? You know, so it's like both of those aspects to it. So um, I wanted to be as very folklore like, but at the same time, have a modern feel on it. So it was just a lot of experiment where it's hard to use a lot of browns like you don't see a lot of browns used. And um, I mean, I guess because there's not a lot of black kids in books, but like you don't see like yeah. that many browns and tones of brown used throughout the whole thing. So um, and then I wanted to feel like each art page, each page was an art piece. 
right? So each thing, if I took the words off of it, each one could stand alone by itself and you could still look at it and be impacted by the, the illustrations itself. And then when I did the words, I like each word to have its own weight because each word mattered. So that's why I chopped up the words to be in the individual place because I wanted each word to actually matter and, need, and none of them to really get lost in like one long sentence. I wanted you to fill each word as you read it and I want to separate each word. So, and um, I thought about that's how, so that's kind of like the philosophy of went into the design of it. And then I, when the, the hardcover, I put all the, the only way place you really see eyes on the black boys is on the, the hardcover of the book, not the paper cover, but the hardcover, because I like the idea of like, if you take off the dust jacket, you just have all these black boys just staring at you. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and I think for me, that wasn't powerful. Like, God damn, these, this, these are the kids. Like, these are the ones that we're trying to talk to. These are the ones that this book is for. And they're all looking back at you. It's like, so I just felt like there's a lot of thought about and symbolism into the art that went into it. So uh, I put a lot of thought into it. Well, I put a lot of thought into everything I do. But I wanted this one to be very special. I wanted to feel, I wanted black boys to feel like it was just for them. That's why I made it as brown as possible. I got to say, um, and I wanna, I'm saying this more for the listener uh, than anybody else, that as so, I, I am someone who has a young white son who's obsessed with sports, and I read it to him, and it, it, was a, it was really good to read to him because it forced him to think about himself in relation to his classmates exactly. and what their dreams might be. Exactly, and that's the whole— so I was like, this is part of trying to raise an anti-racist son— is trying to get him to see black and brown people as three-dimensional and not as stereotypes. I thought the book was terrific for that. Thank you. And that's like the big, like a lot of people are like, oh, what about the white kids? And man, I was like, look, there's tons of books for your kids to read. Like they're, I don't, they don't have to be included in every single story. Like you don't have to, like, you don't have to worry about taking your kid to the movie and hoping that he's represented <laughs> in the film. Right. right. He's already there. No matter where you go, your kid's going to be represented and whatever watch we look at the we look at the casting pictures on the imdb or whatever it's called and it's just like damn everybody in the movie was white <laughs> you know some people say where's white history month well it's called history <laughs> yes yeah. every month yeah so if you if, but i thought that it's interesting though because it's good for kids who are of color to read this book because it, it also pushes them like you said it pushes them to think about other kids and where they come from and when you see their stories is how you empathize, right? Like I always tell, um, like we've been into, we've been empathizing for the, for the, um, for the white culture through creativity for a long time. We empathize with Harry Potter. We empathize with Charlie Bucket. We empathize with. We become. We see these characters, so we know how they feel. We empathize for these characters, and we do the same thing in real life. But like. Never growing up, is there a lot of books where everyone's reading where they empathize with kids of color? Because I think if the empathy goes through reading, it also translates into real life. True. So that's why Absolutely. I think more books need to be written with kids of color in fiction. These novels that you could just read for fun, that all cultures could read, but it's still at the heart. It's like, dang, I didn't realize that, man, black kids like magic the same way I do, or black kids love creative creativity like i mean karate like i do or they like to explore space like they're just like me that's what you're going to mm -hmm. realize when you think about it because people are like oh my son i'm my son is white and he has the same i want him to have the same inspiration well that's great because now your kid can realize that the black kids that's in his classroom need the same inspiration that he needs during for life to get through life and struggling with the same things that he struggled with in, in some aspects
you know, I, I, I got to ask you, I mean, you sound so engaged and charged by this work. Is there anything during this last year, your first year in, my God, probably two decades where you didn't have football as a full-time job? I mean, is there anything you missed about playing this year? No, I didn't really miss anything because, like, football wasn't my purpose. Like, I, right now, like, I'm living in this, the middle of my purpose, which is to, you know, tell these stories and write these stories and be at the forefront of creativity for kids of color. You know, like, there's not too many people that's going to write their stories or are uh, are able to write their stories because they don't come from where they come from. They don't really understand, like, you know, so, like, um, like I was reading something. I think it was, like, 346 books or something written by written with black protagonists out of like 4,000. I want to say this was in maybe the UK. I don't remember where it was, but it was like 346 books out of 4,000 and something written with black protagonists. Only 111 of those is written by black authors, right? Which is crazy. You know what I'm saying? So a third of the books that was written for us is not written by us. So like for me to, like there's a ton of guys that's going to go back to their neighborhoods and the communities as athletes, but there's not going to be a ton that come in as film directors, animators, and and Arthur's and my thing is my ultimate dream in life, which is to see a surge in um, creativity for for black kids. I'm not going to be able to accomplish only the the future youth is going to have to fulfill my dreams for me. So I have to do my work of like planting seeds, seeds of imagination that could grow in them, so they could see like all these different possibilities through the stories I tell, and hopefully that sparks them to write want to write stories and create stories of their own. So what's your next big project after this? What are you working on that you could give us some insight? Uh, I think I'm going to do an art show this summer called Black Girl Black Girls on Black Girl on Adventures. And then um, I got a new, you know, my next book that comes out this fall uh, is a graphic novel. It's called Eli Wonders, the Kung Fu Astronaut. And it's about this little black boy that's in space who is a Kung Fu astronaut. And it's really funny. It's very quirky. It's a little bit, it's a contrast of the, of the like this story, like Dear Black Boys has like a serious tone to it. And then Eli Wonders is like way on the other side. It's just like goofy, funny, and it's quirky. And it, I've I've had I've been writing it for three years, so um it's been one of my favorite projects to write and work on. So Damn. You know a, a Bennett Brothers graphic novel would be a bestseller. You know that right. I wrote actually uh, when uh, Michael's book, um Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, um after reading and going through it, it, it was crazy because reading his story and actually being there and every aspect of his life throughout his life, for the most part, it's interesting that we have we have the same experiences, but they influenced us differently and the way we felt about them were different. Um, and, you know, I've, we both were there. And, and sometimes I'm like, dang, I didn't know he felt like that because I felt like this. So I just assumed that my brother felt the same way that I feel. So it encouraged me to write a story about my life. And... Um, that's fantastic. So I'm I'm about forty thousand, fifty thousand words in on that, and wow. Um, and there's a chapter in there called Bennett Bros. Uh, That's awesome. The Bennett, the Bennett Brothers, and it's about our adventures as kids and stuff. And I think they would make it. And I already did an art for it too, so it's like really, really gorgeous. And, and um, I also have that. How can people learn more about uh, Imagination Agency? About all the work that you're doing? I mean, is what what where can people go? They could just follow the Imagination Agency on um, Instagram or Twitter or check out the website, imaginationagency.com. I'm actually about to start blogging because I'm about to start contributing more writing because I want to do more meaningful work, um, which is 
uh, so I'm gonna be start writing for other newspapers and stuff like that. Articles and I mean, I guess newspapers aren't really newspapers, but yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm yeah. Gonna start whatever we call them now. Yeah, whatever we call them, but I'm gonna start writing for other other folks um, now moving forward. Um, but I think the the biggest thing is like the imagination agency will just follow me, and then um, you'll see all the things that I'm making and I'm working on, um, and and be on the lookout. I mean, I think it's, I think people are gonna really enjoy the stuff that I'm creating right now. That's awesome. And one thing I ask every guest on the Edge of Sports podcast, particularly creative people, is what music do you listen to when you're creating? What inspires you musically? Yeah, I usually listen to mostly musical um, musical scores based on films. Um, I'm a huge Danny Elfman fan. Um, so like, a lot of Danny Elfman's music um, from a lot of my, Tim Burton is one of my favorite directors, so a lot of movies from I got him. you. So a lot of like, yeah, I love John Williams and, um, and, um, but I listen to a lot of musical scores. So like, if I wrote Eli Wonders the entire three years of writing Eli Wonders, only thing I listened to was um, Danny Elfman's score to Men in Black. It was just funny. Every time I write Eli Wonders, I just listen to the Men in Black score because it just puts me in the zone. Well, we'll go to that as we go to the outro right now. Um, Martellus Bennett, I think this interview is really going to inspire some people to think creatively about their lives. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about Stan Kroenke, the owner of the Los Angeles Rams. Okay, look, whom to root for at the Super Bowl is usually an easy decision. It is whoever is playing against the New England Patriots. Whether it's our jealousy, their smugness, or the malodorous worst of Massachusetts vibe that their fan base exudes, there are few pleasures more delicious in sports than seeing them lose a heartbreaker, like last year's defeat at the hands of the Philadelphia Eagles. There's also no pain more acute than when they pull one of these damn games out like the proverbial rabbit out of a hat. That has happened several times over their last two decades of dominance, most acutely when they somehow, and I'm still not sure how, came back from a 28-3 deficit in 2017 to beat the Atlanta Falcons. Yet this year it is tougher than most to find a team to cheer for, because the Patriots are playing the Los Angeles Rams, owned by multi-billionaire Stan Kroenke, also the owner of the Arsenal Football Club, much to their fans' chagrin. Cranky made his money the old-fashioned way, by marrying it. His wife is Anne Walton Cranky, the niece of Walmart founder Sam Walton. But it's not the Walmart fortune that makes the Walton Crankies so impossible to cheer. 
The Rams, as recently as three years ago, were located in Cranky's hometown of St. Louis. He's so St. Louis that his given name is Enos Stanley Cranky, named after Enos Slaughter and Stan Musial, two of arguably the most famous sporting folk ever to come out of the city of St. Louis, both Cardinals legends. But there was no sentimentality on Cranky's part to remain in Missouri. Instead, he is in that select group of pro sports owners, the worst of the worst, who moved their team because they weren't getting enough corporate welfare from their cash-strapped cities. $500 million in city money was not enough for Cranky, and he said in response to that offer that he, quote, couldn't sit there and be a victim, end quote. Yes, the Rams were in Los Angeles from 1946 to 1994. But from 1995 to 2015, they found a loving home in St. Louis, going to two Super Bowls and winning one. The divorce from St. Louis and the move to glitzier, flashier L.A. was anything but pretty. Cranky stuck St. Louis with a $129 million tax bill for what was still owed on the old stadium and will need to be paid out of the public coffers until 2021. Then the city of St. Louis sued the National Football League and all 32 owners over the relocation. They argued that Cranky always planned to move the team to Los Angeles and did not engage in good faith dealings with the city. As they wrote in the lawsuit, in the years leading up to the Rams relocation request, Rams officials decided to move the team and confidentially determined that they would be interested in exploiting any opportunity to do so." And as the local St. Louis press reminds us, that is one of only four lawsuits filed against Cranky in the NFL. At the start of the 2018 season, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch outlined the other three legal cases. One lawsuit involves future ownership of the Rams' former practice facility, known for years as Rams Park. A second involves fans who bought tickets and team merchandise in the final years of the Rams' time in St. Louis. And a third is a class action suit on behalf of thousands of PSL, that's personal seat license holders, from the team's 21-season stay in St. Louis. Now they're located in L.A., and in 2020 we'll be opening the doors on a dream project as big as Los Angeles, a $4.3 billion stadium mega complex intended to be a kind of Shangri-La for the NFL fan. Now the deal was originally set to involve no public money whatsoever, yet as the Los Angeles Times reported, the truth is not that simple. When it comes to stadium deals, it rarely is. And looking at the fine print of the deal, it was determined that tax breaks could reach $100 million. That $100 million giveback is happening at the same time as teachers in Los Angeles have gone on strike to win the very basics for funding public education. Now, to be clear, the Inglewood money that's going to the stadium is a distinct school district from Los Angeles, but the principal of giving back public money in the state when public education is in such dire crisis remains. As Jillian Russom, who's a high school teacher and a member of the United Teachers of Los Angeles Board of Directors said to me, we've been fighting for more support staff, more counselors, more social workers, and $100 million for us would mean an additional support staff person for every school in the city. Corporate tax breaks are the reason why so many schools are underfunded, so it is also a slap in the face to have such a big tax exemption when we are trying to reduce the number of corporate givebacks in order to help our schools. Cranky is so loathsome that it raises this difficult question about whom to root for in this year's big game. It's like the Dick Cheney-John Edwards vice presidential debates of 2004. 
one crusty foe up against an opponent new and shiny, yet both repellent beneath the surface. This might be the year to root for some entertaining commercials or heaven for Fen doing something else. I'll probably end up watching the game because if nothing else, whoever loses, the schadenfreude will be delicious. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to a coalition of civil rights groups, including the Atlanta branch of the NAACP, as well as the Alliance for Black Lives, the Southern Christian Leadership Council, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who are coming together for a rally on the Saturday before Super Bowl Sunday on February 2nd to call national attention to racial inequality, uh, voting rights, and police violence in the state. According to Richard Rose, the president of the Atlanta branch of the NAACP, they will be highlighting, quote, Georgia's allegiance to the Confederate States of America instead of the United States of America. That last part also references a feature of the protest that will be coming out against the scores of Confederate monuments that exist throughout the state of Georgia, including the massive granite carving of Confederate leaders on the face of Stone Mountain, Georgia. So that protest will be February 2nd in Piedmont Park at 2 p.m. on the Saturday before Super Bowl Sunday, February 2nd. Just stand up award to those folks using the Super Bowl to highlight these issues. And speaking of Stone Mountain, this is where we get to the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down! Because a group of white supremacists, some true fascist scum, are also going to use the Saturday before the Super Bowl to highlight their issues. And they will be having a pro-white rally at Stone Mountain. Now, they were actually denied a permit for this, and their leader, whose name I will not give any publicity to, said, quote, to hell with their permit. The Constitution is our permit, end quote. And if this rally is like previous rallies held by this group, there will be hundreds of counter-protesters dwarfing them in size and swamping their ability to get their message out. Either way, they should sit their ass down. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch, where we talk about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick and his effect on the broader world of sports and society. This week, it's all about the Super Bowl concerts that are going to be taking place in Centennial Park. Five days of free concerts that are being produced by Jermaine Dupree uh, in Atlanta. Atlanta hip-hop mogul slash legend Jermaine Dupree. Now, Jermaine Dupree has revealed that he was called a sellout for hosting these Super Bowl-related events because of the artistic picket line 
of artists who are saying that they don't want anything to do with the Super Bowl despite the incredible publicity that it generates because of the NFL's treatment of Colin Kaepernick. So there has been an artistic picket line around the Super Bowl that Jermaine Dupri is crossing. And Jermaine Dupri has told everybody that he has been called a sellout by family members of people who've been killed by the police. He held a meeting with them and they said that he was a sellout for doing these kinds of events. So what Jermaine Dupri has decided, what he said to them, is that they can come on stage at the Super Bowl live events and speak to the crowd and tell their story about police brutality. And this is Jermaine Dupri's way, I guess, of having his cake and eating it too, of trying to deflect the criticism that has fallen on the shoulders of people like Travis Scott for performing at the Super Bowl halftime show. But I gotta say, if it wasn't for Colin Kaepernick, this would not be happening. Because that's what the family members of people who have died of police violence, that's what they put in Jermaine Dupri's face. That you were crossing the Kaepernick picket line, what are you going to do about it? And Jermaine Dupri had to say, well, I'm going to turn these Super Bowl parties, which usually are defined by conspicuous excess, into places where people who have been affected by police violence can actually speak. And so whether one agrees or disagrees with Jermaine Dupri's effort to have his cake and eat it too, if nothing else, we have to say the Kaepernick effect is in full effect. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Super Bowl edition of the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Martellus Bennett, for joining us on the show. Thank you to everybody out there who's been rating the show. Uh, And, yo, if you missed last week's show, which was fantastic with Kane Coulter, uh, former quarterback from Northwestern University who went on a union drive at his school, a lot of unions have picked up that show and have been spreading it around their union locales. Yo, people should check that out. Uh, go to um, edgersportspodcast.com to listen to that and any back episodes of the show. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.